market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's politics podcast. I'm Alistair Grant, the Scotsman's political editor, and I'm joined by Rachel Amory, the Scotsman's political correspondent, and from London, Alexander Brown, the Scotsman's Westminster correspondent. We're recording this just moments before me and Rachel are going to jump on a train to Aberdeen for the Scottish Conservative Party conference in the Granite City. I interviewed Douglas Ross, the Scottish Conservative leader, earlier this week and talked to him about the upcoming general election why current polling doesn't favour his party and his own personal approval ratings, which aren't particularly strong either. We also spoke about the threats and intimidation MPs face, an issue Douglas Ross says has got considerably worse in recent years. And he opened up a bit, actually, about some of the impact on him and his family and the toll that takes. But more on that later. Rachel, just before we head up to conference, what's your what's your view on the the Scottish Conservatives standing in Scottish politics at the moment? Well, right now they are the second biggest party in Scotland, but there is a real risk that potentially after the next Scottish election, they could fall back into third place for them. When it comes to the election this year, the general election, um, I think the Conservatives need to find out what their whole narrative is going to be. It's very much been billed as Labour's on the rise, what are, what's Labour going to do with the become of party and government? And in Scotland, it's very much focused on a fight between Labour and the SNP. And it's kind of, where does the Conservatives fit into this story? How, where does their campaign come through here? So I think that's what they're going to have to really focus on. What is What have they got to shout about in this election? There's only about seven Conservative MPs in Scotland as it is at the moment. So we are talking about very small numbers when it comes to the general election here. But if you look at the by-election in Rutherglen, for example, the Conservatives did really badly in that election, didn't they? Almost worries that they could lose their deposit. They didn't in the end. And there was not much of a chance of them ever doing well in the Rutherglen area. But it's um, it is quite a concern for them going into this, this conference as well, how badly they did at that election. Albeit they'll be more focusing on areas in the southwest and the northeast, which of course is where conference is happening this weekend. So a lot of things for them to think about. And Alex Douglas Ross saying that his party is looking to make gains in Scotland. Of course, he would say that ahead of a general election. What what are the chances of that happening, do you think? I think there is a belief among Tory MPs that they will make some gains. I think that the when you speak to SNP MPs, there is real concern that they are struggling to hold on to their seats. I know that Labour on the ascendancy and the you know the received logic is the SNP will have a drop and Labour will go up, but. All the polling appears to show the Tories basically putting on a couple of seats. They might lose one, but I think they might put on two or three, which would be a remarkable achievement. And I think we also have to kind of look at the context of what happened at Holyrood last time. And Asawa had this campaign and was really good in all debates. uh, And everyone thought Labour were on the up. And Douglas Ross and Tories were criticised constantly for not really having a message, for being too limited and not being able to say anything beyond no to IndyRef2. But Douglas, for all of his faults, delivered a result that was the equivalent of Ruth Davidson. And I don't think that should be ignored. There is a 
if the SNP are bleeding votes and the Tories are maintaining, that's not the worst place to be, even if they are probably going to become the third biggest party uh, in Holyrood next time. And Rachel, if you were advising the Scottish Conservatives, you know, ahead of this general election, what would you tell them to make their narrative? Well, I think one of the things that's quite interesting is the past few elections, whether they've been Scottish elections or general elections, independence has dominated the debate and the Conservatives have very much sort of relied on we're the unionist vote, if you don't want independence, come to us. And we now know that while independence is still quite a very important issue for Scots, the numbers of who supports and who doesn't hasn't changed very much recently and other issues such as the cost of living crisis and how the economy is being handled have kind of taken over independence and people's sort of priorities here. So I think they need to sort of find a way of attracting voters without sort of saying, you know, we're the unionists, we're the ones that are against independence. It's got to be something more than that this time round. And Alex, I was, I was quite interested in his comments about the kind of threats and intimidation facing MPs. He was quite candid about it, quite candid about the impact on him, on his family, measures they have to take. You know, he was talking about his house being made more secure, uh, the kind of impact that's had on his staff, you know, in, in his constituency office. I know this is something that you've spoken to MPs about down in Westminster and the general kind of atmosphere at the moment. Um, is this a kind of widespread issue among MPs, this, this kind of sense of uh, fear for their safety is getting worse. Absolutely. And I think the ease with which you can message an MP online, whether it be through emails or I suppose social media uh, would be the real thing, has made it worse. I know people, I would say in basically every party who have had death threats. I know some of the Labour Party who's had death threats against their children as well. Uh, and multiple MPs who can no longer not just do constituency events without security, but they're also told by police. There's a difference between, you know, the party going, I think you need some security, and the police saying, you cannot do an event unless we are in attendance because of threats against your life. It is not unique. And and obviously, the debate has been somewhat diminished because it was used by the Speaker to justify his actions on the SNP Opposition Day. So some of the SNP have kind of derided this idea and dismissed it because it's not enough of a reason. But if we walk away from the politics of it, it is inarguable that MPs are scared for their lives. I think Jess Phillips has mentioned before that she has several, like she has two doors uh, to get into her house now and a panic room. And there are reports that three different uh, female MPs have had severe death threats. It is unfortunately par for the course now. It is not the exception to have a death threat against you as a member of parliament. It is a pretty standard across the board. And that's a very scary place to be. And Rachel, one of the things that Douglas Ross was saying is that he has a big concern that this kind of thing just puts people off going into politics, that good people who you know would have something to offer otherwise just do not want to go into frontline politics because of uh, these kind of issues. Do, do you think that's a, a kind of growing concern? I certainly wouldn't blame them, but I think there is a concern sort of just widely within politics of that at the moment. Um, if you remember the UK COVID inquiry, um, Professor Debbie Schreeder, now she's a public health expert, and she was sort of saying, you know, we can't get good people who are really talented and really knowledgeable to have public-facing roles because of the abuse that they will get back. So I think it's just widespread in politics in general, isn't it? And Alex, is there a wider issue with you know party selections, people wanting to get into politics in the first place? There is. And I think it it also comes in waves. So, for example, the Labour Party at the moment 
Uh, it seems like every staffer or person who's ever campaigned for the party who I know is currently trying to get seats. But for the Tories who are on their way down, I've spoken to lots of people who are frustrated, both MPs and people who were previously thinking about being candidates, who are frustrated, not just with the direction of the party, of which there are many, uh, but the way the politics is going now. They don't feel like it's something worth getting into. The hours are long, the tensions are inevitably very, very high, uh, and it no longer appeals to people in the way that it did. So I do think there is an issue for, especially the Conservatives at the moment, in finding candidates. Yeah, well, without further ado, we'll go into my interview with Douglas Ross. And just a warning, I've been told by the producer of this podcast that there's an annoying whistling sound in the background during some of this interview. It can't be helped. It's just the, the shape of the Scottish Parliament building just means that the wind, you can hear the wind quite strongly. So apologies for that in advance. I'm Alistair Grant, the political editor of The Scotsman, and I'm here with Douglas Ross, the Scottish Conservative leader, sitting in Douglas Ross's office, speaking just days before the Scottish Conservative Conference kicks off in Aberdeen. It could be the last Scottish Conservative Conference before the election. I think it's fair to say the narrative of this election is very much that Labour's on course for victory. In Scotland, it's a fight between the SNP and Labour. Where, where do you see this, the Scottish Conservatives in this? And do you think there's a risk of them being squeezed out of the story of that election? Well, I think it's uh, a really important election uh, that's coming up. And we've got a very strong message as Scottish Conservatives. Uh, we are defending, you know, six seats uh, across the country at the moment. And we're looking to make gains. So uh, I think this is certainly part of the, the United Kingdom that... Uh, can be a, a very positive story for the Conservatives because uh, I've been out knocking doors in the areas that we currently hold and where we're hoping to, to win some of these seats. And there is absolutely no appetite uh, for people supporting the SNP. They feel they've been uh, failed and let down by this uh, SNP government for years. Uh, and in the continuity First Minister with Hamza Yusuf, they see no change from what they didn't like uh, about Nicola Sturgeon's time in office. Uh, and. Uh, you know, in many of these areas, there's not a belief that Keir Stammer's the, the right man to, to lead the country. There's not a, a huge amount of support for, for Labour when I've been out knocking on doors. So I'm very confident that we can get the focus on the real issues that matter to people uh, across Scotland. So when I speak to, to people in my own constituency in, in Murray and across the Highlands and Islands and with our candidates, they want to speak about improving the NHS in Scotland. They want to get education back up the international rankings. They want to see the roads that they use every day be properly maintained, they don't want a focus to be on independence. And we know Hamza Yusuf has been very clear on this. Page one, line one of the SNP manifesto is going to be about independence. With the Scottish Conservatives, it's going to be about the real priorities for people right across Scotland. Do you see this as an election that's fought on that independence issue then? Well, sadly, every election since 2014 has had the constitutional argument dominating a lot of what we are discussing. That's despite the SNP promising that they would respect the referendum result 10 years ago now. We know they've never respected that result. And I want the focus to be on the issues that really affect people in Scotland. That is one in seven Scots being on an NHS waiting list. It's people in Scotland having to pay for private treatment because they can't wait in pain any longer. I want my two boys to have as good an education at Forest Academy and Avis Primary School that I had. But at the moment, it doesn't look like they would achieve that because our education standards have plummeted down international rankings. So these are the things I want to focus on and I will be focusing on and it's be a lot about what we're speaking about at conference. But so long as the First Minister says that 
Uh, he wants to use every vote for the SNP as a mandate to separate Scotland from the rest of the UK. And the fact that he is going to put that front and centre of his manifesto and the SNP manifesto, uh, it is going to be part of the, the debate that we have. I don't think it should be the priority. I don't think it is the priority for people across Scotland. And that's why I'll be speaking about our alternative plans. We've already launched our Grasping the Thistle paper uh, last year about boosting Scotland's economy. Just a few weeks ago, we launched our health paper about recruiting a thousand additional GPs across Scotland. And these are all positive policies the Scottish Conservatives are taking forward while the SNP continue to be focused and obsessed with independence. And on the issue of making gains, there's currently seven Scottish Conservative MPs, obviously after Lisa Cameron defected from the SNP. How many seats are you realistically targeting going into this general election well, in I, Scotland? I, I've been asked this question a lot. Uh, up until now, and I'll be asked it a lot up until the election, I never put a number on things. Uh, I've got my own thoughts uh, on uh, you know, what I'd like us to achieve, and I think we can have a really good uh, election result here in Scotland. I think we can hold on to what we've got. I think we can uh, make some gains across Scotland as well, because people can see in, in the seats that uh, we hold at the moment, the SNP are in second place, and in, I think, all but maybe one or two seats uh, where the SNP are Currently, the MPs and, and we're second place in, in a lot of those seats. Uh, there, there's one three-way marginal uh, somewhere as well. So where there is that competition between the SNP and the Conservatives, it's very clear that if people unite behind us, vote Conservatives, they can get rid of an SNP MP who will be obsessed with independence and nothing else, and they can vote for a Scottish Conservative MP to stand up for their local area, to champion local issues and get the focus back onto their priorities. You don't want to talk numbers, but what about specific seats? Is there any seats well, you're particularly keen see, to win? If, if I then give you specific seats, you're a very good journalist, Alistair, you'll be able to count up how many there are and then come up with a number. So, but there must uh, be one you'd look at, well, like, that would be very satisfying. You know, to win the, that the, there's lots of seats that I'll be, I've already been campaigning in, I'll continue to campaign in between now and the general election. And I do think the Scottish Conservatives can have a good result up here. And I think people want to send a very clear message to Hamza Youssef and the SNP. They have not been impressed with the way he has handled things as First Minister. We know he was a failure as Transport Secretary, as Justice Secretary, as Health Secretary. Now he is failing on a national level as First Minister. And it's all our constituents who are suffering. And at this election, there's a real opportunity for people to vote Scottish Conservative, elect Scottish Conservative MPs, and send the strongest possible message to Hamza Youssef eh, that he is not delivering for people across Scotland. I've been having a look at recent polling, such as the, the Ipsos Scottish Political Monitor, and it shows that out of the Scottish Conservatives, Scottish Labour and the SNP, your party is the least trusted by, by quite some distance on issues such as growing the economy, managing the NHS, managing education in schools, tackling the cost of living crisis. Why do you think your party is so little trusted? Well, I think we're the party that's coming forward with a lot of the ideas here. You know, you were at the launch of the, the health paper that I um, uh, promoted with Sandish Gulhani just a few weeks ago. No other party is coming up with the solutions to our GP shortages. You know, people are speaking to every MSP in this building, and I know every Scottish MP about the difficulties they face seeing a GP. Well, let's look at the parties that are offering uh, to, to deal with that. The SNP have a commitment to recruit 800 additional GPs. We're not on target to meet that at the moment. But of course, we've gone further than that. We want to shift some of the NHS budget into a general practice to recruit a thousand additional GPs. And that will make a tangible difference to people uh, who are struggling to see their GP on the, uh, at the moment. On the economy, again, you know, for years we've had this debate about uh, increasing taxes in Scotland to, to pay for public services. That's what the SNP uh, and Labour and the Liberal Democrats have done in the past. We're the only party that's saying, actually, 
actually it's wrong that Scots are being taxed more to do the exact same job north of the border than those south of the border. And we're seeing the impact of that now. We're speaking today when the budget looks like it's going to be passed on the back of SNP and Green votes, but it's our economy and finance folks people, Liz Smith and Murdo Fraser, who have been saying this is the wrong approach. We shouldn't be continually increasing taxes in Scotland because ultimately we're going to see a reduction in the amount of tax paid in here in Scotland and that has an impact on public services. So I want to see us growing the economy. We've come forward with these plans and we will keep seeking to convince people that we have alternative positive visions for the future of Scotland. What about your own popularity ratings? You're behind Anna Sarwar, behind Hamza Youssef. Why do you think they are more popular than you? Well, I, I don't know. I, I never take part in these polls, so I don't know uh, what people uh, make those um, uh, assumptions on. But it's something you know I'll, I'll continue to to work as hard as I can to to get that positive message for the Scottish Conservatives out there. It's uh, important that after seventeen years now of the SNP being in power uh, in Scotland, we can show that uh, there are alternative views, uh, there are alternative solutions, because the SNP are not coming up with the solutions to the challenges we are all facing at the moment. You know, if we look at health, that's one I've spoken a lot of uh, during this interview, because it's the top issue that comes into my mailbag uh, as an MP and an MSP. You know, for months, we've had a disgraced health secretary, Michael Matheson, who was more interested in saving his own job than he was in saving uh, the NHS. Uh, you had Hamza Yusuf backing him to the hilt. He couldn't see the clear failures in Michael Matheson and why he had to go back in November, eh, let alone earlier on this year. I think we need to see a change in the way politics is, is done in Scotland and get that focus back on to, to the real priorities people have. And the NHS, education, the economy, infrastructure, they're the issues that are coming up time and time again that people want to focus on. Another big issue linked to the fact your party conference is happening, obviously in Aberdeen. There's been a huge amount of debate around the future of the North Sea, the, the kind of future of the energy sector, been quite a prominent issue in recent days. Uh, you've accused Labour and the SNP of lacking credibility in this area. Uh, Hamza Youssef has said that your party wants to bury its head in the sand and pretend that North Sea oil can last forever. What do you say to that kind of criticism? Well, like so many other things, he's just making it up. You know, he, he doesn't have a strong argument to, to make against Scottish Conservatives because we are proud champions of the oil and gas workers uh, in the northeast of Scotland, indeed right across uh, the United Kingdom. But there is a very clear dividing line here. The SNP and Labour both support a windfall tax. Now, they might spend it differently, but they both support that windfall tax. Indeed, it was the SNP that called for it first. Uh, Labour are now uh, calling for it. We know from Offshore Energies UK what impact that would have on jobs and the economy in the northeast of Scotland if that windfall tax was to be introduced. We know there is still a demand for oil and gas in this country. So surely the best thing is to get it, get it from the North Sea as close to home as possible. Uh, and then that stops us having to import it at greater cost with a greater carbon footprint. But both the SNP and Labour oppose the Rosebank field, uh, for example. And both now have a presumption against any new oil and gas uh, drilling in the North Sea. I support the jobs in the North Sea uh, and the North East of Scotland at the moment, but I also support that transition uh, to renewable greener forms of energy. But we need that highly skilled workforce in the North East at the moment to get us through that transition. Labour and the SNP plans would see a cliff edge to the exploration of oil and gas. It would see an end to tens of thousands of jobs. Um, Grampian Chamber of Commerce has predicted 42,000 jobs could be lost as a result of Labour's windfall tax. Of course, we know the SNP's windfall tax is the same. So both these parties could be culpable for the loss of 
tens of thousands of jobs, whereas it's the Scottish Conservatives that are standing up for those jobs. I voted for uh, the uh, oil and gas licensing bill uh, a couple of weeks ago in the House of Commons because I know how important that is. I listened to industry, I listened to the sectors who were saying, you know, we support this bill, we want to see uh, more security for oil and gas going forward. So I absolutely believe it's got a strong role to play in our just transition to net zero, but we don't do that by getting rid of these highly skilled jobs in Scotland and across the UK, which is what would happen under the SNP and Labour response. Looking ahead to Holyrood and that Holyrood election in 2026, what are your realistic ambitions there? Because you could be knocked back into third place behind the SNP and Labour. So I didn't give you numbers with the question about general election. I'm not going to, to start uh, predicting an election that you think you'll still be the second party. I, there, you know, there is an awful lot to happen between now and the general election, and then between the general election and the Scottish Parliament election. And I think it's a really exciting time uh, in Scottish politics. And what we have here with our 31 uh, MSPs is uh, a group of MSPs here in Holyrood who people out with can, chamber can see are the only party that are challenging this failing entire SNP government because we know on an awful lot of the issues, uh, be it taxation, be it gender recognition reform, be it uh, you know some of the COVID restrictions uh, that uh, were put in place during the pandemic, the Labour Party supported uh, the SNP every inch of the way. So if people are looking for that uh, distinct, challenging voice here in Holyrood, they can see it's coming from the Scottish Conservatives. And I think we'll see that continuing over the next few years. And that's why I've launched this paper on the economy. We've launched one on the NHS. We've got plans for education, uh, for rural Scotland, for agriculture. I, I really think it's an exciting time if we can focus on these issues rather than be dominated by the constitutional issue that has uh, taken precedence over too much of Scottish politics for far too long. Do you see a route to power in Holyrood? Do you, do you think of yourself as a potential future First well, Minister? Well, I'm going to work as hard as possible to secure every single vote I can for the Scottish Conservatives to make sure we uh, return as many MPs as possible, as MSPs as possible, uh, and continue this development and policy. Because I think we have had this situation where actually when politicians, when others speak about different ways of doing things, it, that gets overshadowed by another statement or another comment about independence or another referendum. Let's have that mature, grown-up debate about the policies that we're all elected here to deliver. You know, it's our health system, our education system, justice, eh, agriculture, rural issues. These are vitally important to people the length and breadth of Scotland, and I don't think we've had enough thorough, rigorous debate on different policies that the various parties would take forward in these areas. As well as being an MSP, you're also obviously an, an MP. Um, there's been quite a febrile, chaotic atmosphere in Westminster recently, and concerns have been raised about the safety of MPs. I wondered what your views were on this issue of safety and whether you've ever had any concerns about your own safety as an MP or any concerns about the safety of your, of your family. I have, and... Um you know, I, I don't speak about it uh, a lot. Um, I try to deal with it um, individually, but you know, we've had to to make our house a lot more secure. I'm I'm away from home a lot, and uh, it's a worry that my wife and and our young kids um, are at home a lot when we know that our groups that say they're going to target the the properties um, of members of parliament. You know, we know with the uh, Just Stop Oil protests, uh, they are looking to. Uh, target MPs and we know with the, the current situation in the Middle East that uh, you know, tensions have been raised significantly. Uh, I've got to say I, I viewed the, the proceedings from the House of Commons uh, last week. 
you know, in despair. Uh, I thought that was the worst possible look of the House of Commons. Whatever side of the argument you're on uh, with the situation of should there be an immediate ceasefire, uh, a pause to the, the conflict, uh, Parliament descended into to farce and looked more interested uh, in the process of how we do things in Westminster rather than uh, the situation um, between uh, Israel and Palestine. But, you know, for as long as I've been uh, in elected office, there's been people who don't like what uh, I said as a councillor, as an MSP, as an MP, but it's never felt um, as difficult as this. Uh, and my biggest worry is that it puts very good people off seeking to stand for elected office. If you are someone who could contribute greatly to public life in Scotland or across the UK, you will look at the threats and intimidation that MPs, MSPs and others are facing at the moment and think, why bother? Uh, and our democracy will suffer uh, as a result of that. You know, my number one priority is keeping my, my family safe. And just before we had this discussion, I had an update from my uh, local police about um, uh, the operation to keep MPs safe. Uh, and that's good. It's good that, that they're in contact, but it, it also reminds you, you know, uh, very clearly uh, that these threats are genuine. People have gone to court and been uh, punished for, for death threats against me in the, the lead up to the 2021 election. But nothing seems to change it. You know, I've lost a friend and colleague in David Amos, uh, murdered at his surgery. And if anything, same things have got worse since then. And I, I just don't understand how we can get ourselves in a situation if where people currently in elected office can feel threatened and vulnerable, particularly their, their family uh, and my staff uh, who are at the front line in my constituency office, when we should be able to have uh, what are very serious and important debates without those threats and intimidation coming to the forefront. And I wish that had improved over my time as an MP as I look to, to stand down from Westminster, but there's no doubt it's got considerably worse since I was first elected in 2017. And that brings uh, an awful lot of fear uh, for me about what that does for our politics going forward. And you mentioned that contact from the police. What, what kind of precautions do you have to take? Um, I can't go into obviously yeah. every detail, um, but you know my house is, is an awful lot more secure than, than it probably needs to be as, as a traditional uh, family home. Uh, myself and my staff have obviously been issued with uh, panic buttons and such like when we're, we're out and about. You know, I, I read all the emails that, that come in to me and you know, people who disagree with me and who have every right to, to take a different opinion on the future uh, of the Middle East. The language they use about me and, and my family and, and how my family must think about how I voted or not voted or, or taken a position on a certain issue, they could make the exact same argument without using language that I think goes uh, beyond the pale at times uh, about what I personally think uh, and what others think. You know, I've got surgeries coming up, you know, we're just getting them uh, advertised again, go out and about in the communities who've elected me to represent them and I want to make myself as available as possible to hear from them. But I know some people are going to use those surgeries uh, to make political points. Uh, my colleagues, uh, David Mandel and, and John Lamont, um, you know, in particular recently, uh, have had constituency surgeries uh, impacted um, by people uh, who you know, disagree uh, with our stance on Israel and Gaza. And that's impacted constituents going to see John and David and other MPs about other really important issues. That's not democracy. If one group thinks their voice can be louder and more violent than the other group, 
then that is not right. We can't have that in our politics. And the fact that the police had to contact me today uh, on the back of threats that MPs have had just shows how serious it is. Uh, and I've got to explain to my wife, who puts her with an awful lot, you know, I'm away from home a lot, you know, she gets spoken to about things I've said or done at work and when she's out socially, to also tell her we've had another update about MP security and we might have to do this and that differently. Uh, I think is wrong. You know, I chose this this role. I chose to be involved in politics. Uh, that doesn't mean my my wife and my family have to be dragged into it. And, and I, you know, I said at the beginning of this, I don't speak about this much. Um, I'm not trying to get any sympathy yeah. or anything like that. But I think people do have to realise the impact it has. Okay, on the politicians, you know, we put ourselves front and centre, but the people who work for us are only trying to help our constituents and our family are only there to support us. But when they're getting dragged into this, and I think this is across the political spectrum, it's completely wrong. And I, w I wondered actually what the situation was like in Holyrood, because presumably as a party leader, you've had to deal with safety concerns with MSPs. Mm -hmm. Presumably it's not that much different from Westminster, or is it? I would say it is in terms of, certainly with the current conflict, there are, I get an awful lot more emails as an MP than an MSP. Now that's understandable because foreign affairs are reserved to the UK Parliament and some of these issues are being voted on in Westminster, but, but not in Holyrood. So the level of interaction I've had is far bigger as an MP than an MSP. But I have in the last week uh, raised severe concerns about the security uh, here in Parliament. Uh, so I returned to Parliament last Wednesday from an event that I'd been at, came around the corner, the corner uh, and there was a large number of protesters outside the, the entrance I was due to come in. So we went further up to the Queensbury House entrance and I got in okay. By the time we went to leave later on that evening, that entrance was then blocked. Uh, eventually I was able to get out, but there were protesters still there. A man came up and shouted at me. I kept on walking and got away. But if that is going to become more common, and I absolutely respect the right for people to, to protest and express their views, but when our parliament is affected for MSPs getting in and out, but crucially for me, I was also at an event last week supporting uh, apprentices in the defence industry. Now, there were people outside, encouraged by an MSP, Ross Greer, I'm not going to shy away from it, who were protesting at these 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds coming into their parliament to celebrate what they are doing with their lives, getting an apprenticeship and the future career that they want. They are absolutely entitled to come into their parliament without fear or favour. And the fact that some of them were verbally and some physically abused on their way into the Scottish parliament is completely unacceptable. Uh, and it's been raised with the presiding officer. Uh, you know, I'm having further discussions with security this week. I'm all for uh, freedom of speech, but we cannot have a situation where people feel intimidated coming into their parliament, where they are welcome, where they are respected, and where they are celebrated. And that's what we've seen in recent weeks. What would you like to see the parliament do? Well, they have to take it a lot more seriously. The security uh, of MSPs coming in and out of parliament and our guests has to be of utmost importance and I felt there were significant deficiencies particularly last week to the extent that on my way home I was in contact with the Chief Executive of the Parliament so we have to address it there was a point of order at the end of FMQs last week from Stephen Kerr the presiding officer said she was aware of some of the issues according to her everyone got into Parliament I understand that wasn't the case some people felt they couldn't wait in the queue under that intimidation any longer so if we're at a situation where people in Scotland are invited into their parliament to meet MSPs, to explain what they're doing, to, you know, 
discuss the success of apprenticeships across Scotland. If these young people think their parliament is not a welcoming place for them, that gives me huge concerns for the future. And that's why I think we have to deal with this seriously. I should say, just for the sake of balance, I'm sure Ross Weir would dispute some of your characterisation of, of the... Well, he, of can, well he, he can dispute it, but he was filmed with a megaphone outside Parliament encouraging these protests. So I don't see any defence in that at all. And that's why, you know, I think we've got to be very clear on this. But I understand your role, you've got to, to get balance. Just very quickly on the kind of Gaza ceasefire vote and the, some of the chaotic scenes we saw there, do you back... The Speaker, I know you've been asked this before, um, but obviously there's a lot of calls for his resignation, for him to step down. Do you support him? So I'm going to start off by saying yes, but um, I don't think now is the time to, to change the Speaker. That's why I say yes, I'm not going to, you know, come away from that. I said last week when I was asked about it, leaving the Commons Chamber, I, I would reflect on that over the weekend, and I have reflected. Uh, I think the Speaker made a, a huge mistake he ripped up the rule book, knowing the consequences of that, and that's why we ended up with the scenes that we did uh, last Wednesday. Um, I don't think that's the only reason, um, but there is no doubt if he had followed the rules, if he had done as his clerk had advised him to, uh, then we would have had the, the process that we were all um, acquainted with, uh, and that would have gone through. Now, people would have been troubled by that, in particular the Labour Party, uh, and there are huge questions here for Keir Starmer. Uh, I've read some reports today that he may be investigated uh, by the Standards Committee for the role he played and his party played in putting pressure on the Speaker. Others will look into that. But the Speaker made a mistake, but he came to the Parliament and accepted he had made a mistake, uh, and he apologised for it. We would never have seen that with the former Speaker, John Berko, who I also served under. And I think for me, the biggest disappointment is if John Berko had been in the chair last week, it would not have been a surprise. We would all have expected it. It was a surprise because Sir Lindsay Hoyle has been a very good Speaker. He has largely, uh, fairly worked for both sides, government and opposition. He's been very good at encouraging the smaller parties uh, to get involved. Uh, and I think one major error uh, should not be the end of your career. But I also think he's uh, in a period now that he's got to rebuild the trust. So I am one of the MPs uh, that is still concerned about how he took that decision and why he took the decision last week. Uh, and I will be interested to hear from him directly and through the discussions that he continues to have with other parties, how he will rebuild that trust. But I think right now, um, you know, he has been elected as a speaker. He has apologised for a mistake he made and we should see how he is now going to work to rebuild the trust that's been lost across the House. That said, I understand, you know, many of my colleagues, I think we're now over 80 colleagues yeah. across the whole of the House of Commons. That's a significant number. Um, you know, a previous Speaker has gone for uh, a lot less support uh, in terms of confidence in the Speaker, but you're asking me directly, do I support him? I do support him, but he's got work to do to rebuild trust. Do you think the SNP were playing politics? Some have, some have accused them of that. I noted how disappointed the First Minister was when that was even put to him. I mean, opposition days are always about politics. You know, an opposition party never chooses uh, an easy motion for the government or other parties to support. So, of course, in an opposition day debate, the SNP wanted to highlight the split within the Labour Party. And they were able to do that under the rules of the House of Commons on an opposition day debate that would not have allowed Labour to put in uh, an amendment to what uh, the SNP had put forward. So yes, uh, I believe the First Minister and others have 
strongly held some very personal views uh, on the situation in the Middle East. But the point I always come back to is, and we had a, uh, a motion passed last week, despite there being no division, there's no ceasefire in the Middle East. It was never going to lead to an immediate ceasefire. And unless we have a situation where Hamas are willing to release all the hostages, to put down their arms and uh, not seek further uh, attacks uh, on Israel, then we can't have uh, a genuine uh, ceasefire. And anything that's done in the House of Commons from opposition parties bringing forward opposition votes, SO24s that we were discussing yesterday uh, in Westminster, is not going to change the situation. Uh, so I fully support and I'm absolutely behind the, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary who are looking to a sustainable uh, solution to the conflict uh, that we've seen uh, in the Middle East since the uh, atrocious terrorist attacks last year. Douglas Ross, thanks very much. Thank you. And that was Douglas Ross, the Scottish Conservative leader, speaking just days before the Scottish Tory conference kicks off in Aberdeen this weekend. Uh, but that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, thanks very much.